Her name was Perpetua, a young Christian living in the African city of Carthage, around, around about AD 200. Just 22 years old, born to a wealthy family and a mother of an infant son. Uh, she was with a group of Christians going through baptism classes when she was arrested and her crime, refusing to renounce her faith, refusing to worship the emperors as divine. And all she needed to do was to take a pinch of the incense and put it on a fire that burned before the image of Caesar, but she refused. The Roman governor, sympathetic to her, said to her, have pity on your father's grey head. Have pity on your infant son. Offer the sacrifice for the welfare of the empress. I will not, she replied. Are you a Christian? Asked the governor. She replied, yes, I am. And with that, together with others, Perpetua was then stripped naked and given nets to wear and then thrown into the arena to be attacked by the war beast and finally death by the sword. Fast forward today, actually summer of 2018, I was back in Singapore visiting a friend. His name was Andrew Ng. Andrew was a medical doctor and a missionary. And together with his wife, Belinda, they were SIM's first Asian missionary candidates. They were appointed to Niger, West Africa in 1977 and spent many years working in a hospital there. Andrew had pancreatic cancer and I was visiting Andrew to encourage him. But like many others before me who had gone to visit and encourage Andrew, I left his flat that day and deeply encouraged myself. That would be the last time I would see Andrew. He passed away in January this year. A missionary said of Andrew at his passing away. She said, and I quote, I was living in a very remote part of Kenya during that time, and as you can imagine, transportation was not the easiest. And yet, without complaint, he travelled over 10 hours by a local uncomfortable bus on broken road conditions just to visit and encourage me. And I remember his departure that day, watching him get on the bus. And knowing him as a medical doctor from Singapore, he could have all the worldly wealth and travel luxury that he desired. But yet, there he was, a humble servant like Jesus. A young woman perpetuated from almost 2,000 years ago, an older man, Andrew, from Singapore. What do they have in common? What might have guided them in how they lived their lives and faced their deaths? Welcome to Christ the King. If you just joined us, we are in the second week of our four-week series on thinking about issues. And we covered the topic of covenant last week. And today we'll be covering the topic of kingdom. As mentioned last week, to understand the Bible, it is important to know the storyline of the Bible. The Bible may comprise of 66 books, but it's really one grand story. And there are themes that unify the whole story. And last week, we covered one such unifying theme, covenant. And this morning, I just want to focus on the theme of kingdom. I want to specifically answer three questions regarding kingdom. What is it? How does it unfold in the Bible? Why does it matter? What, how, why? What is the kingdom? I'll wager that before you came to church this morning, you would not have thought that the idea of the kingdom of God 
or just kingdom for short, will be one of the most important ideas in Christianity. You don't believe me? Ask yourself. What's the first thing that Jesus preached when he started his ministry? You heard that read a moment ago in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, just know that in Matthew, the kingdom of heaven is synonymous with the kingdom of God. All the other gospel writers will use the, the, the phrase kingdom of God. It means the same thing, right? But the key point is this, that when Jesus began his ministry, he started preaching the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. And what did Jesus speak about when he was resurrected? Well, you have to go to Acts chapter 1 verse 3 for that. And here we read, he presented himself, he as in Jesus, presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about kingdom of God. What was the last thing recorded in the book of Acts that tells us what Paul was doing when he was under house arrest in Rome? Look at Acts chapter 28 verse 30, literally the last two verses in Acts. And I read for you. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So you see, at the beginning and at the end of Jesus' ministry and Paul's ministry, they spoke about the kingdom of God. And I think that's a pretty good indication of the importance of the topic. But yet, despite its importance, there's so much misunderstanding about the kingdom. Some have equated the kingdom with heaven and said that Jesus was saying in so many words that the kingdom is the place you go to when you die. Uh, something of the kingdom uh, as being the church. And so the verses above, for instance, that we talked about earlier on, Jesus was announcing the beginning of the age of the church. And then something of the kingdom as simply ethics. This is Jesus' rallying call to social action. And for others, the kingdom has become a euphemism for the rule of God in one's heart. Something very subjective. Now, the problem with all these ideas about kingdom is that they suffer from reductionism. They've taken a part of the whole and placed it in the center. They're not incorrect, just incomplete. So what's the kingdom? And here's one definition I want to use this morning. Essentially, the kingdom is about a king who rules, a people who are ruled, and a sphere where this rule is recognized as taking place. In short, the kingdom of God is God's people in God's place under God's rule. Got it? That's the definition. Well, let's see now how this idea of kingdom of God unfolds in the Bible. Our focus this morning will be on Matthew chapter 4, but we will see how this kingdom idea runs through the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Look with me at Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. So much is captured in those few verses. To begin with, why was John the Baptist arrested? Well, we're not told here, but we find that out in Mark chapter 6. We're told that John the Baptist's crime was that he spoke truth to power. He told a king, that was King Herod at that point in time, that he was wrong to marry his brother's wife. And it would appear that with John the Baptist's arrest, 
somehow the baton is now passed on to Jesus. And here we read that Jesus withdrew into Galilee. Now the word withdrew might seem to have a bit of a negative connotation, as if Jesus was trying to distance himself from the area of John's arrest, uh, to get away from danger. But perhaps a better rendering of the verb might well be returned. You see, King Herod actually ruled the region of Galilee. So Jesus is not running away from King Herod. If anything, he's going into his territory. In fact, Herod's capital city, Tiberias, is only eight and a half miles down the coast of the Sea of Galilee from Capernaum. And you know what Capernaum is? That's the base for Jesus' ministry. In fact, one commentator even suggested that Jesus goes to the center of Herod's realm of authority as a challenge to him. This king is not afraid of the earthly king. Now, you need to know something about um, the territory of Zebulun and Natalie as well. These two territories, because they were situated in the northwestern most part of Israel, have centuries ago been the first places to fall when the Assyrians attacked Israel. So they were conquered by the Assyrians uh, in 732 BC. And during that period, they experienced a lot of turmoil. And in fact, there were a lot of infiltration of Gentile influences during that period uh, uh, in, that, in those two places. And that's why the area is also called Galilee of the Nations. Look at verse 16. The Jews living there are called the people dwelling in darkness. These are the Jews who are waiting for deliverance while living among the Gentiles who are without hope. But yet it is here where the darkness is most dense that these Jews are going to be the first to see the great light of God's deliverance. And Matthew is saying that this prophecy by Isaiah is being fulfilled by Jesus. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9. It's on page 536 of the Black Bible, 536, and larger print Bible, it's 638, 638, 536 and 638. So those are your Black Bible, it's 536. Now, if you look at verses 1 and 2, this is the part of the prophecy that Matthew quotes from. And if you looked at it, you've got to ask why. Why would this darkness this hopelessness be lifted up. What is this great light that has dawned that Isaiah writes about here in verse 2? And for the answer to the question from Isaiah, look a few verses down. Look at verses 6 and 7. You all know these verses because you hear them read almost every Advent and, and Christmas. Let me read for you. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it, with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of the hosts will do this. What Isaiah is saying here is that the reason the light has dawned is because a ruler from the throne of David will come to govern. This will be a king who will rule, who will bring about peace, shalom, and will somewhat be divine as well. And there will be a people under his rule, a remnant upon whom the light will dawn. 
Isaiah is foretelling the day when the kingdom of God will come. And this is what Matthew picks up and say it's being fulfilled in Matthew chapter 4. Now, but was Isaiah the only one speaking about the kingdom in the Old Testament? Well, actually, if you look carefully, the Old Testament is chock full of allusions and, and teachings about the kingdom. Even though the phrase kingdom of God hardly appears there. Or to begin with, in Genesis, we're told that God created the heavens and the earth. And since He created all things, He reigns over all things. As the Creator God, He establishes His authority over all His creation. The psalmist puts it this way in Psalm 103 verse 19. Psalm 103 verse 19. The Lord has established His throne in heaven and His kingdom rules over all. You see, God is king over His kingdom. And then God created humans, Adam and Eve. Humans were the apex of God's creation made in God's image. And our role in the kingdom was to be God's image-bearing servant kings. Adam and Eve were placed in the Garden of Eden and given dominion and authority over the earth. They had direct access to God who ruled over them, instructed them on a way of life, provided them with sustenance and meaningful work. That was to be the pattern for the kingdom. In your handout, you have the P there. That's what it stands for, pattern for the kingdom. God's people in God's place under God's rule. That was Genesis 1 and 2. But as we know, Adam and Eve chose not to obey the king. They chose not to come under God's rule. There was rebellion in the kingdom. Rebellion in the kingdom. And for that, they were banished from the Garden of Eden. And that was Genesis 3. Then things start to get from bad to worse. Humanity became so bad that God literally had to press the reset button and brought the flood, saving only Noah and his family in an ark. But things didn't improve much after that because humans continued to rebel. And then we had the Tower of Babel. And that's when God's plan for the kingdom got started with Abraham. And God called out a people for himself to bless through Abraham. God gave a promise for the kingdom. Promise for the kingdom. That through Abraham, he would re-establish his kingdom rule on earth. God promised Abraham offspring, land and blessings through the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12, 15 and 17. In fact, in Genesis chapter 17 verse 6, especially God promised Abraham that he will make him the father of a multitude of nations and kings shall come from him. Abraham is key to the grand story of the Bible because it will be through Abraham that God will establish his kingdom on earth. Adam's rebellion will be made right by Abraham's family's obedience. And true enough, within a few generations, Abraham's family grew into this nation, the nation of Israel. But this nation was not in the promised land. It was in Egypt. They were slaves to the Pharaoh. God rescued them, as you know, through Moses, brought them through the Red Sea into the wilderness of Sinai. And there, as we read last week in Exodus chapter 19, verse 4 and 6, God said if, he, if they obeyed his voice and kept his command, covenant, Israel shall be God's treasured possession among all peoples, and it shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God then gave the laws to the Israelites through Moses, and God laid out for them the ethics for the kingdom. Ethics for the kingdom. Uh, this is how God's people under God's rule 
in God's place was to live. They were to be holy, set apart from other nations around them. They were to be a kingdom of priests, mediating God's blessing and presence to all the neighboring nations. Well, but we know again that Israel was not willing to obey God's rule, they rebelled. Remember 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 5? This was about a year ago. We're doing 1 Samuel. Feels like a long time ago. When the elders of Israel gathered together and came to the prophet Samuel to ask for a king, they wanted to be like all the other nations around them. Precisely the thing that God didn't want them to be. And God said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. And so Israel had its kings. And in their history with kings, apart from a few brief moments, the vast majority of the kings were unfaithful. God, however, made a covenant with one of their kings, King David. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promised that there would be a Davidic king whose throne he would establish forever, an everlasting king from the line of David. That was the Davidic covenant. But Israel continued to rebel against God. And finally, God inflicted punishment on Israel and allowed them to be conquered. First in the north by the Assyrians, and then subsequently in the south by the Babylonians. And it's during this time, over a period of a few hundred years, that prophets like Isaiah, we just read him from him, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and so on, began to make prophecies about the kingdom. Prophecies about the kingdom. In particular, prophecies about the coming Messiah, an anointed king, that's what it means, Messiah, an anointed king, who will come one day to deliver Israel from its enemies. And so when Matthew writes in Matthew chapter 4, verse 14, that the beginning of Jesus' ministry in Galilee was the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, this was exactly what he had in mind. This was the king, the Messiah, that Israel had long waited for to deliver his people who were dwelling in darkness. This is the fulfillment of the kingdom. Fulfillment of the kingdom. Jesus, by coming as a descendant of Abraham and David, became the true Israelite who would be able to fulfill all the covenants with God that Israel could not keep. Jesus became the representative for Israel. And that's why we see all the images and all the hopes for the Israelites in the Old Testament transferred to Jesus in the New Testament. And what do I mean by that? Look at our passage again uh, this morning in Matthew 4. You turn to Matthew 4. It's on page 759 on the Black Bible and 897 in the Large Print Bibles. 759 and 897. In fact, just look at the page before that in chapter 2. If you look at the headings, you'll see Matthew telling the story of how Joseph and Mary had to escape to Egypt. How Herod, King Herod, slaughtered the baby boys to try to destroy the king of the Jews that the wise men from the east came to worship. And then how Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River and then immediately led into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days. Now, all these are meant to point Matthew's listener or readers to the fact that Jesus is reenacting the history of Israel. He's retracing the footsteps of Israel. You see, remember Israel in Exodus, they went down to Egypt because of a famine. 
And then the Pharaoh killed all the baby boys, and, and then Israel had to escape across the Red Sea. And then they were tested in the wilderness of Sinai for 40 years. And of course, we know that the Israel of Moses filled back then, but not Jesus, the true Israel. And now in Matthew chapter 4, verse 18, what do we see? We see Jesus walking by the Sea of Galilee, calling his first disciples. He calls the two brothers, Simon Peter and Andrew, his brother, both fishermen. He walks further and he calls two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. And then in time to come, we know he would call eight others, a total of 12 disciples, symbolizing the 12 tribes of Israel. And from these 12 disciples, Jesus is forming a new kingdom community. And Jesus tells his disciples, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And this man immediately dropped what they were doing and followed him. And that's the mark of a true member of this new kingdom community. Obedience to the king. When we likewise obey and follow Jesus, we become part of this new community. And then in verses 23 to 25, we are told that Jesus went through Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And his fame spread throughout all Syria and, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures, paralytics. He healed them all. And then a great crowd followed him from Galilee and then Decapolis and, and from Jerusalem, Judea and then beyond the Jordan. You see, Jesus was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing the sick. And what Matthew is doing here is reminding his listeners that the healings are pointing to what the prophets had said would be the signs of the messianic age. Look at Isaiah 35 verse 5 and 6 for instance. This is what they're saying. That this is what happens when the Lord comes to deliver his people. Let me read it for you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. And Jesus is fulfilling all these prophecies. He's showing them that he's the Messiah, he's the king who has authority over sickness and over the demons. But while Jesus fulfills the hopes and the dreams of Israel, he also corrects their misconceptions. This king was like no other king that Israel knew or expected. Israel expected their promised king to free them from their Roman oppressors. Israel was looking for a, a, what, a Rambo, you know, coming to town, guns blazing to rescue the hostages, or, or maybe an Iron Man you know, in, in the Marvel movies. But Jesus comes quietly instead. Rather than conquering, he's conquered. Rather than killing the oppressors, he's healing people from everywhere. Not just the Jews, mind you, but Gentiles as well. Gentiles from areas like Syria, the Capitalists, and, and beyond the Jordan. These are all Gentile areas. Rather than freeing the Israelites from the Romans, this king was captured and crucified by the Romans. You see, this king came to die because the kingdom will be realized not by the sword, but through the cross. But perhaps what was also unexpected was that the fulfillment of the promised kingdom happened in Jesus' time without the final consummation. The promised kingdom of God has begun, as Jesus said, it is at hand, but it's not fully here. 
And that is why Jesus taught the disciples later to pray, Thy kingdom come. You see, the kingdom of God is already here, but not yet fully here. And so with Jesus' resurrection and ascension later on, what happens now in the kingdom when the king is away? Through the Holy Spirit, the king is now forming his community from all the nations. His community in the kingdom. His community in the kingdom. And this community is called the church. Well, look around you. We are examples of the kingdom community that Jesus started. The book of Acts and the epistles describe what life in this community is like. How the king's subjects are to live in holiness and to proclaim the good news of the kingdom to those who are not yet in the kingdom. Because it will be through this community, the church, that people who are not yet in the kingdom will get a glimpse of the kingdom. This community is also meant to live in hope in anticipation of the day when the king shall return to bring about the full fulfillment of the kingdom. We're talking about eschatology. That's the big word for end times, the future. And this is where we turn to our earlier reading of Revelation chapter 21, verse 1 to 8, page 977. If you can turn with me there, page 977 in the Black Bible and, and 1143 in the Large Print Bible. 977 and 1143, Revelation chapter 21. And here John the Apostle writes, Then I see a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, a dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. What a day that will be. Can you imagine a time when there will be no more tears, no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain? Best of all, God dwelling with us. It is, in a sense, a return to the Garden of Eden before the fall. And that's the goal of the kingdom. The goal of the kingdom. And so our message of the kingdom is not simply that God is king, but that God will come as king and set right all the wrongs in his creation. And so there you have it. The kingdom of God from Genesis to Revelation. The pattern of the kingdom, the rebellion in the kingdom, the promise of the kingdom, the ethics in the kingdom, the prophecies about the kingdom, the fulfillment of the kingdom, the community in the kingdom, and the goal of the kingdom. Now that we see how the kingdom theme unfolds in the Bible, the next question is why? Why does all this matter to us today? In closing, let me just make three points. First, the story is told about a woman who organized her own funeral and asked to be buried with a fork in her right hand. Why a fork? 
Well, when people saw it, she knew they would ask the pastor about it. And that would give him the opportunity to tell them a little story about a woman's youth. You see, when she was a little child, she loved to attend church suppers. And she especially loved it near the end. Just before the people were clearing away all the dishes. Because one of the older ladies would always lean over to her and tell her, Save your fork. I can almost hear Pam or Sandra saying that to me. And that would really get her excited because she knew something better was coming, whether it was apple pie or delicious blueberry pie or perhaps some rich chocolate cake. But whatever it was, she knew it was going to be good. And so to her, the fork was always a reminder that something better was coming. And when I die, she told the pastor, and people asked about the fork, I want you to tell them my story and then to tell them the good news that when you belong to Jesus Christ, you too can be assured that something better is coming. I started a sermon this morning with the story of Perpetua and, and Andrew, two people who couldn't be from more different backgrounds. But that didn't matter. The way they chose to live their lives, the way they faced death, it stems from the same hope that they have that something better is coming. And for all of us in the kingdom, we can have the same hope that something better is coming because that is the goal of the kingdom. And I hope you believe that with all your heart. Secondly, as Keith reminded me during our staff meeting this past week as we are discussing the sermon, eschatology drives ethics. Eschatology drives ethics. Knowing what you know about your future, the end times, as someone in the kingdom, knowing how the end times will play out. Now, how does that change how you live today? What ethical framework will you live by? One writer recently wrote, and I quote, We can boil down the morality and the ethics of the Western society into one cliché. We can boil down the morality and the ethics of the Western society into one cliché. Be true to yourself. Be true to yourself. Because out of this somewhat trite platitude unfolds these philosophical tenets. You belong to yourself. You are the captain of your own ship. You determine what values, ethics, Identity and spiritual beliefs are right for yourself. Whatever rules you establish are fine, as long as they do not infringe upon or condemn another person's human autonomy or inflict violence on another person. You follow those values and beliefs out of your own inner strength, and you and nobody else judge your success in being true to these values. The common phrase of college students today is, you do you. I may not want to engage in random hookups, but if that's what you want to do, hey, you do you. Smoking marijuana may not work for me, but if it works for you, hey, you do you. This cliche functionally affirms and blesses human autonomy. Beneath these beliefs resides the sovereignty of the individual. End quote. Now, is that true in your life? If so, you must see by now how contrary it is to what we've been talking about this morning, the kingdom of God. 
because it's no longer the sovereignty of God who rules over his people and decides what is right or wrong. It is the sovereignty of the individual. In fact, it is the Garden of Eden all over again, but now with the fall. Let's make sure that our understanding of eschatology is driving our ethics, how we will behave. Let us be sure that we are living as citizens of the kingdom, subjects of the king, in obedience to the king, as we look forward to the king returning again. Thirdly, as it was in the days of Isaiah, our world is equally dark today. The light of the gospel has been unveiled by God's grace, but many continue to ignore it. As citizens of this kingdom, we haven't proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom, the good news, unless we have told people how they can enter into the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom is not good news. If we tell people how wonderful God's kingdom is, but we neglect to tell them how they can become citizens of the kingdom. So let's be sure that we're equipping ourselves to proclaim to others the gospel of the kingdom and how they can enter it. As a church, let us not be contented being, as someone puts it, keepers of the aquarium, but let us also be fishers of men. Jesus had two commands in the Matthew 4 passage that we read today. Verse 17, repent. And verse 19, follow me. Repent. Follow me. The world needs to hear that. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.